Job 28, verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of, of off, Ophir and in precious onks or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, We've heard rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. And when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure when he made a decree for the rain and the way for the lightning of the thunder. And he sought and declared it and he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we come uh, in these moments asking that you would indeed provide the wisdom that we need. Uh, Would you provide for us the bread of your word that would nourish us and carry us along? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So where then is it that you do turn when you're looking for answers? When you need wisdom and, and understanding? Where is it that you gravitate towards to try and find those answers? The internet. Thanks, Tom. Um, you're, you're one step ahead of me, brother. Because the, the growing helpfulness and simultaneously the concern of artificial intelligence um, is specifically what's on my mind. Uh, you know, we, I, I'm very quick to turn to YouTube, to turn to Google for all of my answers. And we're going to see this growing as we consider things that are coming onto, onto the scene that have yet to be fully enacted. Um, one program in particular that uh, you will hear more about is ChatGPT. Um, some of you are already aware of it. It is a bit like a, a Google on steroids. You, if you have a need for a grocery list, you just simply get on your ChatGPT and you tell it what your diet is. Um, and, and it will come up with a full grocery list for you. If you get on there and you say, hey, I need to send an email to a friend, something about July and let's go to the beach. It, it will craft a perfectly worded, maybe you make a few tweaks and send it off. If you're a computer programmer at work and you're in need of, of making some you, you know coding changes for a program, it'll do that for you. If you are in need of some sort of algorithm, it will build it for you. You just give it some, feed it some information. It'll figure out what might take you years to, to accomplish. Hypothetically, this has never been done before, but just hypothetically, if you were attending the Tuesday night men's Bible study and you had a need for figuring out some questions to the men's Bible study, you could hypothetically plug in 
all the questions and come up with answers to which the men in the Bible study apparently would be unaware that they came not from you, nor a Bible scholar or a commentator, but from an artificial intelligent robot. Friends, the intelligence of th- these programs, they're going to become mind-blowing. The, the folks who, who create these are on genius level. But as smart as chat GPT is, there still are some holes. For example, someone was playing um, GPT a game of chess. You know, just classic the board game, chess. And for whatever reason, uh, chat GPT decided that it was going to use its own king to kill off its own pawn. So clearly there are some holes there. Um, you, you know, I propose no matter how smart uh, this program will become or other programs like it in the future, no matter what, um, it, it's still going to be one-dimensional. No matter what, no matter how much it's able to scour the internet and cobble together an answer, in many cases, it will just simply fall flat. Similarly, this morning, as we've been considering and will continue to consider This morning, Job's friends, they're scouring their minds. They're trying to come up with a reason that their righteous friend Job is suffering. And no matter how many times they put in various data inputs, the answer that keeps getting spit out from them is in much in the same way. It's like a robot without a true wisdom. They simply keep parroting the same thing, which is, Job, you are suffering because you are a great sinner. That's the only thing that keeps coming out from them because the wisdom of the friends remains one-dimensional. Like robots, they refuse to consider or reconsider their worldview, their held beliefs, and hear Job out, and they keep repeating the same content. Now this morning, We will see that the friends will remain stunted. But one thing I hope that is becoming clear as we continue through this book is Job makes progress. Things are being pulled out and fleshed out that are helpful for us as we suffer. And this morning we see more of that. But we see the friends, they are simply giving the same song and dance. We will see that in chapters 22 and 25. And we'll see there's a a need then for Job. He's needing vindication for the innocent and he's crying out for justice and judgment on the guilty. We see that in chapters 22 through 23, as well as 26 and 27. And then we'll conclude our time this morning by looking at a search for wisdom. And this is chapters 26 through 28. And there's some overlap in, in, in these sections. But first, it's the same old song and dance. Chapter 22. And so if you're, if you're not there, if you want to flip back over to 22, we'll see here that Eliphaz in chapter 22, he gives his final speech. This will be the last time we hear from Eliphaz. Um, it, it's a speech in which he insists that there are no ends to Job's iniquity. Um, that Job just continues to do wrong, and so he keeps getting uh, punished through, for this. That Job is a real and true sinner, and this is why he, of course, faces this calamity. But here is Eliphaz highlights something that is true and right. And so I don't, we don't want to throw the baby out the bathwater. He does say something here that is true. He says, God sees all that we do, whether it's good or evil. And he, he poses that in the question in verses 13 through 14 of chapter 22, where he says, but you say, what does God know? 
Can he judge through the deep darkness that clouds veil him so as not to see and he walks on the vault of heaven? In other words, the, the implied answer is, of course, God, God may be up in the clouds. He may be in the heavens. But the implied answer is no. God sees these things. God knows. You can hide out in a cave, but God will know what's going on. And the conclusion, though, that is drawn from this inference is, is faulty. Eliphaz says, this is why the wicked die young. And this is why, Job, your time will be cut short. God sees and knows that you're going to pay the price for your evil deeds, Job. For those of you who like logic, Job's friends have one premise right and another premise wrong. God sees all. This is true. People who do evil acts are immediately punished. This is not true. And it's important for us to have this down. As I've said before, we'll say again, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's important for us to have that deep-seated and understood. He then says in verses 21 and following, Job, if, if you would just agree with God, if you would just uh, repent, then you would prosper. Things would really come into their own for you, Job. If you would simply agree with God and be at peace. What's the problem? The problem is Job, he's already repentant. He's already blameless. He was a believer who trusted in God. In in the New Testament terms, we would say that he was a justified saint. And for Eliphaz to consistently harp on whether or not Job is a forgiven and blameless man is to call into question his salvation. It's the same song and dance. It's the same tune that Bildad will echo in chapter 25. If we flip over to 25, Bildad in chapter 25, this is the shortest response here that we see from the three friends. And it's the final responses. This is the last we hear of them. So after three cycles We won't hear from Zophar. Zophar gets cut out. Bildad, the middle one who keeps, it keeps Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And then here it's Eliphaz, Bildad, cut. I think that's for a reason. But we see here with chapter 25, he will essentially say Job's desire to stand before the Lord is absurd. We see the argument here where he says in verse 4 of chapter 25, he says, how then can a man... Be in the right before God. How can he who is born of woman be pure? Um, Then we see in verse 5 through 6 where he says, Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less a man who is a maggot and the son of man which is a worm. And so the, the irony here is, of course, um, Job is, is sitting likely with, with maggots on him because we've already read, this was alluded to earlier in Job's response about his flesh that is rotting. But, but here, Bildad is saying, no, Job, you, you presume on the Lord when you think that, that a man like you can come before the Lord and actually argue your case. You, you don't understand something, Job, because look, to the Lord, the moon and the stars are dim. Now, this is important for us to catch. For us, they are dim because of our light pollution. But you have to understand in ancient times in rural areas, the stars and the moon at night could be incredibly, incredibly bright. But, but what Bildad's trying, the case he's trying to make is to say, look, they might be bright and clear to us at night, 
but to God who's so out there, almost like a deist type of view. God is far and removed. He doesn't, he's not caring about your problems here, Job. He doesn't want his, uh, he doesn't want to get involved in this. You think you can argue with him? He doesn't want to hear you. No, the stars and the moon are dim to him. I think that's the, the sense of it here. Um, and so what we get is the same recycled argument. On one hand, Job, you need to repent if you want to prosper. On the other hand, God doesn't want to hear you, Job. It's the same song and dance. And so Job, though, each time we hear from him, he's adding, though, uh, more value and insights. And he shows tremendous, thra- uh, tremendous uh, faith through this trial. And this is where we, we flip back to chapter 22 and 23, where we see, uh, or tw- sorry, 23 and 24, where we see vindication for the innocent. Um, the, the, the tension of this entire book was brought again to light uh, when one of you reached out to me asking, now, Thomas, help me understand this here. I've been, I've been, I've been struggling with this. I'm trying to think through how this book works. I mean, surely Job, he's not sinless, right? I mean, how can he make these sweeping statements about himself, such as chapter 23 at verse 10, where he says, I know that if I was on trial, I would come out shining like gold. I've not turned aside, but I have kept the Lord's ways. Uh, meaning meaning I, I have been living for the Lord. I've been honoring him. I've been doing what's been called of a person of faith. How is it that Job gets away with saying these things? I mean, how is he regarding himself to be guilt-free? How does Job make these sort of judgments when doesn't Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, doesn't Paul even say things like, hey, I don't make, I don't even make judgments regarding my own self? Well, let me remind you of something here that Paul, when he speaks there in 1 Corinthians, I think he's speaking in terms of his fellow men who were making judgments about him, where Paul is is talking about, um, you know, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. And he's saying, look, guys, we shouldn't be making these sort of judgments about who's greater. Paul says, I don't even make those kind of judgments about myself. Just forget that. No, it's the Lord ultimately who is 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 judging us and making judgments. I think Paul is speaking uh, about foolish men making judgments like Job's friends. And there he says, essentially, let the Lord be judge of me. And likewise, I see Job here is speaking in terms of justification of, of, of in regards and in light of this retributive principle that he had not done some great evil nor some great secret sin that would warrant him losing his children, business, health, friends, everything that was dear to him. In fact, we could argue that, that Job, even where he has sinned, is forgiven. Job knows that God is, a, is merciful and therefore he sacrifices to the Lord because he's expecting to be forgiven, to be put in a right relationship with the Lord. We saw that he had that kind of understanding when we began this book in chapter one, didn't we? We saw that he, that he understood that. But here we, we see this expanded in chapter 23 at verse 10 where he says, but he knows the way that I take, meaning the Lord, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way. I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. You see that in Job? There remains this, this, this understanding 
that he is to honor and to fear the Lord. Knowing what he desires, the Lord does. Whatever the Lord does, he, whatever pleases him, he does. This is verse 13. And that he's not a tame lion, verse 16, because Job comes to this conclusion that the Almighty has terrified Job. No, Job has a, 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 a tremendous respect, honor, reverence, and fear of the Lord. But one interesting turn here, though, uh, is in Job chapter 24, where he will now not only seek out and cry for vindication, but Job also is asking for justice and judgment to come upon the wicked. He wants retribution for the wicked. We see this in in 24 verse 1, where he says, Why are not the times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do uh, those who know him never seek his days? You see this? What is being assumed is that God works on the immediate plane. Everything is tit for tat on the immediate moment. So Job has this assumption um, that if you do something dumb, you will in turn get something back immediately. So you step on the end of the rake, and then when you step on it, the handle comes up and thwaps you immediately in the head. Or you do something good. You you help an, an elderly gal get the groceries into her vehicle and immediately you turn and there's a $10 bill on the ground for you. This is how he's assuming that things work, but, it, but it's clearly not the case. He's merely assuming modern day karma. You know, in, in, the, in the old form of karma, what it was you had to live your entire life horribly for you to be, come back and literally born, be born a worm. Or in the old version of karma, you, you lived as a servant, suffering and working hard right now and being honest and good. And then you'd be come back and you'd be, you would be born as, you know, uh, in, in a palace with luxurious food, right? But we're Americans and we're impatient and we can't stand to wait around for anything. So we take the karma and we just shrink it down to like, we want immediate payout whether good or bad, right now. So that's, that's how we work, right? But Job's complaint is that all this timing is delayed. He's like, where is it? We're expecting the, 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 the retribution right now. And that is where we're tapping into the New Testament teaching by Jesus that judgment for the wicked will indeed come. But the long delay is with the purpose. The Lord delays because he desires to see the kingdom of God continue to grow. Meanwhile, if we weren't sure what Job is referencing here, look at 24 verses 2 through 4, where he says, Some move landmarks, and they seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless, and they take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road, the poor off the earth, and all hide themselves. So, pause right here. Job is saying, Not only are those who fear the Lord suffering, but the wicked are getting away with murder, as it were. Well, at least in in these offenses, they are hurting the orphans, they're hurting the widows by taking what they have. And we see the destitute in verses 5 through 8 are in a horrible place because of the selfish abuses of power. We see this at play today. Um, Job saw it back then. What is Job longing for? Job is longing for, in New Testament terms, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Job wants. That's what he's longing for. We want to belong to a kingdom where the humble, loving, righteous are blessed, 
and where the boastful, proud, wicked are judged and pay for their crimes. That's what we want, all of us here. And the truth is, one day, that kingdom will come to its fullness. Well, then here with chapters 26 through 27, we find Job responds with this thick, thick sarcasm. If you flip to 26, consider verses 1 through 4, where he says, and Job answered and said, how how have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge? With those who help, with those, sorry, with whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out of you? Um, What we see here is Job is, is saying uh, amazing with this, with this tone. He's proving that the religion of his three amigos is not working. It, it, It doesn't work. And by the way, if I could just pause, you see that no, how, how have you friends helped the one with no power, no strength, and no wisdom? I just want to pause here. Friends, Jesus has come with power and strength and wisdom for those who come to a point they say, I have no power, strength, and wisdom. This is the grace that he brings to us. And Job is saying, in this moment, you, you've all been here to supposedly help me. But all you've been bringing is this retributive principle, this karma. And really, at the end of the day, it has no power to save me. At the end of the day, this karma will not save the righteous when they're suffering. It will not save the sinner when they are repentant. Because, friends, the wisdom of human religion is incredibly bankrupt. It simply leaves you to, quote Paul, dead in your sins and trespasses. And at the end of the day, it just leaves you without any real substantive hope. And so we begin then to see the search for wisdom. And this is where this begins to be fleshed out from 26 through 28. Here's the page turns. We, we, we find Job merely making a clear case that God is sovereign. Uh, God controls the created order. And through this, God subdues evil. This is pictured um, in verse 11, where we see the shaking of the whole earth. Um, the whole earth shakes as God wants it to, when he wants it to. And then he can, he can still the sea. He can make the sea calm, verse 12. Even the heavens and the wind are controlled by him in verse 13, which is why it's important that we catch verse 14 here in 26, where he says, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. Catch this. These are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Do you catch what Job's implying here? He says, when I consider all that God's been doing, when I look outside and I see the snow and I, and I hear the thunder and I hear the rain and the seasons come and go and the mountains and the sea, when I consider all this, this is just the very, very outskirts revealing to us who God is doesn't really tell us much. It's just the very little, the, the very hem of who he is. It's a whisper of God. Meaning all that we know from natural revelation is just a small fragment of who he is. And this is an amazing answer from, from Job who has yet to hear all of scripture. Uh, remember, Job's at a time where, you know, we don't believe he actually had the, the full written word of God at all. Um, and so he has yet to hear and, and of course, we could argue that even with Scripture, we do not have 
the full understanding of God. We have exponentially more understanding of who God is because of Scripture, but still we're just tapping into the fringe of God. Even as we read His Word, there's so much more that we have yet to fully grasp and understand. Then in Job 27, he returns to this injustice piece. See this in verses 27, verses 1 through 6. And Job again, he took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away the, the right, the Almighty, and who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right till I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast to my righteousness and I will not let go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So Job, here he's saying, I've been an honest truth teller. Why would I turn now? If I've spoken about my own character in the past and I've said, look, I'm not sinless, but I'm blameless. I have not done some great wicked evil as you all are suggesting. Why would I now turn and lie when I've been telling the truth all along? No, I'm going to maintain my integrity. I'm going to say, I have been honest with you telling the truth about my character and I will maintain that position. I'm not moving from it. No, and then in verse 7 here, he's going to ask that his enemies, his adversaries, that they would be treated like enemies of God. He wants them to be cut off. And what I believe Job is tapping, well, let's read verse 7. He says, let my enemy be as the wicked and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. What I think Job is tapping into here is to say, How dare people mistreat the righteous? If one is holy and blameless, like Job, how dare anyone come in and accuse him or mistreat him? And you don't have to think long to think of another man who was horribly mistreated. We think of our Lord, whose righteousness and holiness far exceeds Job's. He's truly without sin, and yet his accusers lied about him and hurled insults at him and abused him. And so there seems to be a warning here about falsely accusing the righteous and the fate of those who do. One commentator says, here is a terrifying picture of the danger in which we stand if we set ourselves as accusers and enemies of the man or woman whom God has justified. Job chapter 27 verse 20, terrors overtake him like a flood and in the night a whirlwind carries him off. Friends, this is the picture of those who come against the people whom God has declared righteous. So if we add all this up, Bill, Dad, and friends say, we know how world religion works. We have a tight little grid. Nothing's going to change that. And Job continues his course saying, your wisdom doesn't account for all that happens. It just simply doesn't make sense of all that happens in the world. And I am living proof of that which leads Job to call out for wisdom in chapter 28. Now, in chapter 28, I want you to catch the flow. In verses 1 through 14, Job shows that everything can be found. Everything can be found. If you want to find something, you can find it. You want gold? You can find it. So you can have precious jewelry. You want iron? So you can build tall buildings? Yeah, you can find it. So we see in verse uh, 1 through 2, Surely there is a mine for silver 
and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Flip over to verse nine. And we see Job says the proud beast or sorry, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and he overturns mountains by the roots and he cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. So he's, he, Job is essentially saying everything has its place if you look for it. If you just want to find something, you, you will find it. We, there's a place for everything except, except this one thing. Verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. And it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. You see, the the same places that the rarest jewels are found, the same places that we would long to go through and, and unearth crystals and other things that we're looking for. He goes, hey, you go to those places and you won't find wisdom. It's not there. Interesting. But here's the problem. Even if you did find it there, even if you went to the bottom of the sea and you said, aha, here it is. Or if you dug through the, the, the crack in the mountain and you found, found wisdom and said, here it is. Here's the problem, friends. You can't afford it. You couldn't buy it. Look at verse 15 through 19, where he says, it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of off." I keep having trouble with this word. Ophir, in its precious onks or sapphire, gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of the coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Church, do you see the problem? The problem is you need wisdom and you cannot find it. And the other problem is, even if you could find it, you can't afford it. It's not for sale. Which leads Job to say this in verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from all the eyes of the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. And he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. And when he gave to the wind its height and apportioned the waters by measure and he made a decree for the rain and the wave for the lightning and the thunder and he saw it and declared it, he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Job here in this section shows us an understanding that must be grasped. And it is this. Wisdom is not found in a place. It is found in a person. It's found in God. Its source is God. And there's a great connection here that is in this passage that that really we cannot miss. We ought not to miss. Verse 28 where he says, Behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil, that is understanding. I want to recall to mind again how this book opened up with Job. That Job has lost everything. The very first verse of this book before he has lost everything is this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. 
That man was blameless and upright. One who, listen, feared God and turned away from evil. Fearing the Lord goes way beyond just being afraid of God. Fear in this context is a reverent understanding. Job understands this fact. God is God. (laughs) And if we miss the point, then at the end of this chapter one, after losing everything, Job arose and he tore his uh, robe and shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. See, friends, true wisdom recognizes God as God and recognizes that God deserves our hearts and affection and obedience and worship so that we turn from what God says is evil and we bow before the one who truly captures our hearts. We, we see then in Job a man who is wise and expresses wisdom that and while he is suffering, he doesn't have an answer. Don't recall, Job doesn't know chapter 1. He doesn't understand what happened in chapter 1. You know chapter 1. I know chapter 1. Job doesn't know chapter 1. And even though he doesn't know chapter 1, he worships. Nonetheless, realizing this, he worships as a wise man. He worships as chapter 28, verse 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding which is what the wise man Job has done. Knowing that wisdom, friends, it's not just found in a place. No, it's found in a person. How good is it for us to see this this morning? How good it is for you to understand that right now? Because you don't know your chapter one. I don't even know your chapter one. You may not know your chapter one until heaven, and even in heaven, maybe you don't know your chapter one. Yet we don't need to, because when we are suffering, we may look for reasons why we're suffering. We may look for solutions to the problems for why we're suffering. But friends, what is wisdom? Wisdom is worshiping God as God through our suffering, through our trials. Trusting God and standing with Him, even when it's most difficult to say what Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. What a great example to us all. Job cries out why. Job speaks rashly. He speaks harshly. Job, he, he questions and he laments and he even wishes he wasn't born. But you know what Job doesn't stop doing through this entire book? He doesn't stop honoring God as God and worshiping him. He continues to honor and relate to the Lord, understanding that the fear of the Lord is wisdom, to turn away from evil is understanding. And so the application of this chapter and this this section, it just spills right off from the page onto us. You know, I, I know that some of the ways you all suffer, I know some of the ways that you suffer, but I likely don't understand it all. I likely only just see a snippet of the ways that you are going through trials, physical pain, relational strife, Bearing with one another, sorrow and heaviness, times, seasons of depression. But Christian, in and through it all, will you continue to worship God? Will you continue to worship God through the suffering? Will you say, I know that I may not understand everything or be able to explain all the reasons for my suffering, but for me to know that there is someone who does understand the reasons for it all, for me, that will be enough. It will be enough for me to worship the God who does know my chapter one. 
But Job, you know, he also functions in a different way. Not just as our example, which he is, but also as a type and a figure of Christ. And so this morning, if you are with us and you're still trying to figure out if you should follow the same God that Job worships, I want you to see that Job, a blameless man who loses everything and suffers tremendously and remains faithful to be restored at the end of the book. I want you to see that, keeping this in mind, that he ends up being restored to greater than what he had even at the beginning. And this entire book then is really bound up with another man who came and and, and was not just blameless, but was sinless. And that he lost all his wealth. And he became born amongst men in the pig pen. And that he too, like Job, was a priest caring for and serving those around him. And he suffered dearly. Losing not just all that he had, but he lost his very life. And that he died as a sacrifice. And not a sacrifice for his ten children. But, but Christ died for all people of faith, including you and I. And I desire that you would know this man, that he was not just wise, but this Christ was truly wisdom personified. He was wisdom, as it were, with clothes on. Paul says regarding this Jesus that he wants us, meaning you and I, to reach all the fullness of assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2. And this wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ, it can be yours. But friend, if you're with us this morning and you're still wrestling with this, you need to do something first. In order to have this wise Jesus, you have to first admit that outside of Christ, you've been foolish. You have to admit that your own life, your own ways of trying to make it on your own and answer your own difficult questions have left you like Job's friends coming up with the same worldview that doesn't account for everything you truly experience. And then second, you have to leave your folly. The Bible speaks of this in terms of repenting. It's turning away from the foolish ways of the world to turn to Christ and say, God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your, your, your way is better than mine. And God in his grace, he calls everyone who will hear and to seek him to find everlasting life and wisdom in him. Friends, the wisdom that you need The wisdom that you cannot find and the wisdom that even if you could find it, you can't buy it is found in Jesus Christ alone. And it's yours. If you would turn in your heart and say, Jesus, give me what I lack, but I need in you. First Corinthians chapter one for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, even now with intelligence, that will exceed, I, I believe, AI, artificial intelligence, and chat GPT, and all these, they're going to exceed human intelligence at some point, if it hasn't already, and, and, and it, it will come up with this great answers to a lot of our human problems, that's fine. But no matter what, no matter how smart these programs become, they will never come up with the greatest solution to our human problems. Chat GPT would never come up with the cross. This idea, the righteous for the unrighteous, comes only from the wisdom of God above. Christopher Ash says, we might assume that the book of Job is about arguments and philosophies and debates. It's not. It's about a search of a believing sufferer looking for wisdom and longing to understand why this world is the way it is. And I would argue 
that the book of Job, the end doesn't fully make sense. It makes sense on a certain level, but it doesn't make full sense until you know the gospel. Until you understand an innocent man who was blameless and upright would lose everything, suffer tremendously, and at the end, it would turn out for our good. But as I close, I want to land on reminding you, even as I'm reminding myself here this morning, that wisdom is not found in a place, but in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, who calls us to run to him like Job. Calls you this morning to mourn, yes. To cry out, yes. To question why, yes. But in the end, that you would never stop worshiping him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Job. I thank you that we have this long book that drags us through the heavy emotions of loss and suffering and heartache and pain. I thank you that we have a book like this that that whispers to us the truth of the gospel. And that in the end, Lord, we see the great restoration for Job being restored to more than what he has, for Christ to rise to the highest seated position, and for us someday to go far beyond what we have now. So we thank you for this. We thank you for what it reveals. In Jesus' name, amen.